chapter 3 as we see today how the Lord is our strength. Habakkuk is a little tiny book in the Old Testament, so feel free to use your table of contents, which is located at the very front, and you can find that. If, if you're looking at a pew Bible, which you might have one of those close to you, that's going to be page 786, and we're actually going to go over to 787 today as well. If you're a guest with us this morning, welcome. I'm Joshua. I'm the lead pastor here at Freshwater. Our mission as a church is to help people become totally committed followers of Jesus Christ. So um, if I haven't met you yet, I would love to meet you before the end of the day. If you did not get a sermon outline and you'd like to do the fill-in thing, Hold your hand up and the service hosts are going to run by and they will give you one if you need one, if you didn't get one when you walked in this morning. Here at Freshwater, we have what we call partners of the church. Some churches call them members. We call them partners. A partner of Freshwater is an individual that has decided to repent of their sins place their faith in Jesus, begin following Jesus, and unite themselves with the local church. So they have decided to join the church, we could say, to lock arms with the people that are Freshwater Church and um, to be intentional about advancing the mission of the church. And there's a process for making that happen. One of the first steps, maybe the first step, is what we call a new partner class. We have that about three times a year, which is a no-obligation opportunity to meet in a class where we talk about the mission and the vision and the history of Freshwater and what it looks like to join the church and the expectations that you can have for the church as well as the expectations that the fellow partners have for those that decide to join the church as well. And when an individual decides to proceed with becoming a partner, they sign their covenant they turn it in, and then the next step in that is that we have what we call a partnership interview, where I sit down with that individual and we talk about all kinds of good stuff, including um, you know, where are you going to serve at in the church, what life group are you going to, are you planning on checking out, all of that kind of good stuff. Um, but also during that interview, we talk about how and when they became a Christ follower. And it is honestly one of the most eye-opening, encouraging events that I get to do in ministry here at Freshwater, just to hear how people became a Christian. Some of you were fortunate enough, more fortunate than I, you were raised in a Christian home where you heard the gospel on a regular basis and your parents did the best that they could to usher you toward Christ. Um, other people, you may have heard the gospel at work, you might have heard it in a, in a youth group, you might have heard it from a friend, your spouse, whatever it could have been, but the common thread that runs through every one of our stories of how we became Christ followers is that when we met Jesus, our life was changed. That's the truth. When we met Jesus, our life was changed. Now, we didn't become perfect. We're not people who have got it all together. And you know, we're, we're doing this perfectly anyway. That's not it at all. We are people who God has brought out of our addictions and out of our vices. And God has just revealed to us how good he really is. And when he reveals to us how good he really is, we willingly run toward him. And our love for the world begins to fade. And our love for God begins to increase. And hopefully it increases to the point where it kind of encapsulates everything about your life. And, you know, this is a theme that we find not only whenever I do the partnership interviews when I hear about how you became a Christian, but this is a theme that we find very present in the Bible. When people encounter God, they are changed. You can think about Paul meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus. When that event happens, his life is forever changed. You can think about Nicodemus 
in John chapter 3, when Nicodemus is talking to Jesus in the middle of the night. His life has changed at that point. You can think about Moses at the burning bush way back in the book of Exodus. I mean, the examples seem endless. When a person truly encounters God, their life enters a period of dramatic transformation. What we get to see in this third chapter of Habakkuk is that Habakkuk the prophet has had one of those encounters with God. And by this chapter, we get to see that his life and the way he thinks about himself and the way he thinks about God and the way that he thinks about the world has dramatically changed. It really has. And I want to make the point this morning that even though we're not in communication with God in the exact same way that Habakkuk was as a prophet, we should be able to respond to this book We should be able to look at this book and study this book and leave changed in a similar way to how Habakkuk was changed when he encountered God. Now, how was Habakkuk changed? Well, I'll tell you how his conversation with God changed him, but before I do, let's just review this book one last final time. We're in this series where we're working our way through the book of Habakkuk. We've been here for about eight or nine weeks, something like that. We've called this series... The righteous shall live by faith. And just to review, Habakkuk is a prophet whom God is using in a mighty way. He's prophesying about 600 years before Jesus Christ would be born. And he's prophesying to the people of the nation of Judah. King Josiah, you'll remember, was a good king. He was a great king, as a matter of fact. But when he dies, the nation politically and spiritually and economically begins to crumble. And a lot of the reforms that he had made, the spiritual reforms are reversed. Sin is rampant. Holiness among the people is absent. And Habakkuk stands up before God. And Habakkuk is asking God, first and foremost, God, how long are you going to allow this to happen? How long are you going to allow this sin to be rampant in your country? And God answers and says, Habakkuk, I'm raising up the enemy nation of the Babylonians or the Chaldeans, and I'm going to use them to march through your country, my country, the country of Judah, and I'm going to punish the people for their sin. And Habakkuk says, God, how can you do that? The Babylonians are more wicked than we are, at which if you remember, God's response was, Habakkuk, mind your own business. I am God. I can do whatever I want. But then God begins to give those five woes toward the Chaldeans. We looked at those one each week for the last five weeks. When he warns them first about the danger of greed, and then he warned them about the danger of comfort, and then he warned them about the danger of misguided effort, and then he warned them about the danger of influence, and then last week Luke preached and God warned them about what? The danger of idolatry. But now the ball is back in Habakkuk's court. The book, you remember, has been this dialogue back and forth. Habakkuk starts, then God talks, then Habakkuk responds, and then God talks. Well, now it's Habakkuk's turn once again. And remember, my point this morning is that if we're studying the Scripture in the context and we're finding out what it means, then you should not be leaving this book eight or nine weeks later after we've worked through it week by week, verse by verse. We should not be leaving this book with the same attitude as the attitude we had when we started it. It changed Habakkuk in a mighty way. We're going to see that this week. And my emphasis, my point this morning, is that it should change you as well. So here's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see two ways that the story of Habakkuk changes us. And we're going to see that by seeing how the story of Habakkuk changes Habakkuk first and foremost. So here's the first way it changes us. It changes the way we wait. It changes the way we wait. Because look with me now at verses 1 through 16. We're going to read all of those verses, almost the entire chapter right now. And we'll pick up in verse 17 here in just a second. So look at what it says, verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. 
O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand. And there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on the horses on the chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you in rift. The, the raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in a fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me. Rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret, you trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Okay, stop right there for just a minute. Goodness gracious. A little bit overwhelming, a little bit confusing. You may have noticed a common theme running through those 15 verses. We're going to cover this briefly in just a second. But Habakkuk is incredibly concerned with God's power, the way that God has worked in his creation. We're going to talk more about that. But then I want you to notice what he says next Picking up right where we left off, verse 16, he says, Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. So remember, everything that Habakkuk has worked through, God is going to allow this people, this pagan nation, to march through my country. I'm mad about it. I don't understand it. I don't agree with it. I don't like it. But now, what am I going to do? I am going to quietly wait. I'm going to quietly wait. Now, waiting is a hard thing. And I'll tell you why. I think about this image that I saw on Facebook. It might have been a meme. I honestly don't remember. But imagine this insanely long line. Um, and the picture is being taken inside of some type of a business office. And it's being taken from the back, looking over the shoulder of the employee who's sitting at the desk. And they've got a computer there. I don't know what kind of an office it is. It's a DMV or a tax office or something like that. And the picture is looking out the window. And there are just maybe hundreds of people waiting in line to talk to this one woman who is sitting at this desk. Who um, is doing whatever it is that they need doing. And... Um, then you look at her computer screen and she's playing solitaire. So it's incredibly, it's, it's hilarious to me. But we feel like that with, when we're waiting, right? I mean, that's why, that's why that image grabs our attention. We feel like when we are waiting, it frustrates us. I think it, 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 for no other reason, our emotional response, at least mine, my frustration is founded on this notion that waiting is dead time. That when we're waiting on the Lord, we're just standing in line. Behind a hundred, you know, behind a hundred other people, and this person working the counter is doing nothing but playing solitaire. That's why the line isn't moving. But that's not the biblical idea of waiting at all. 
waiting on the Lord to correct injustice, waiting on the Lord to get rid of racism, waiting on the Lord to alleviate poverty, waiting on the Lord to stop chemical attacks in Syria. We're not standing in a line and the person leading the line is idle. Like, that's not it at all. It's more like when I pick up a balloon, one of the many balloons that it seems like is constantly bouncing around our living room in our house with my two little daughters, and I pick one of those balloons up, and I stretch out the end of it, you know, the the end that's close to the knot, and I take a little knife, and I poke a little bitty hole in that balloon, just enough so that the air escapes, but that it doesn't blow up. That's what we're doing as we wait on the Lord, and that I am absolutely positive. I'm certain that that air is escaping. We are absolutely certain that it will deflate. Nothing in all of creation is going to stop that from happening. But we're not exactly sure how long it's going to take. We're not exactly sure how, long, how quickly it's deflating. Well, friend, we can wait because just like Habakkuk, God is helping us to trust him in such a way that we don't have to worry about the future. We don't have to be upset with him. We don't have to allow doubt to control us or to dismantle the faith that we have in him. No, instead, we are people that are certain that although we may not know all the details, God is bringing about his will. It is happening. He is ushering history toward his end, and it's all going to come together to his glory. That doesn't matter if we are Habakkuk prophesying 600 years before Jesus was born, watching his nation fall apart before his eyes. Or if it's you today concerned about your job or your marriage or your bank account or your children or whatever it could be, we really can wait patiently on the Lord. We can do that. Now, it's one thing for me to say that and all of us sit there and we nod our heads like, yeah, yeah, preacher, I agree with that. We can wait on the Lord. That's easy enough to do. Let's wait patiently on the Lord. But if we would be honest, we would say that that's not always as easy to do as we'd probably like it to be. Sometimes it's incredibly difficult to wait on the Lord. It certainly was for Habakkuk. Seems like it was difficult for Job. Seems like it was difficult for Daniel, for Abraham and Sarah as they waited on a child, for Peter, for Paul. This isn't something that seems to come naturally for biblical characters. It doesn't seem like it comes naturally for us either. So here's my question. What is it really going to take in your life to be able to do this? Another way for me to ask this is what maybe in your life and my life needs to increase if we are going to be able to wait patiently on the Lord? Well, two things. First, under letter A, our understanding of how God has worked in the past needs to grow. Our understanding of how God has worked in the past needs to grow. We see that actually right here in the text. What is Habakkuk pointing to in verses 1 through 15? I don't have the time to give all the details. That seemed like a rather extensive scripture to read, but... But he's basically pointing back in history toward all these events where God delivered his people. So verse 3, the word Timon, it means south. And with the reference to Mount Paran, Habakkuk's probably talking about the time period immediately after the Exodus when God delivered the people from their Exodus out of Egypt. Down in verse 8, you remember that God used his power over the Nile and the Jordan rivers as well as the Red Sea, delivering the people from slavery in Egypt. There are many more weaved throughout the scripture, but Habakkuk is pointing back. And those 15 verses leading up to the point where he says, I will wait patiently, Habakkuk is simply recounting the rest of the Old Testament. He's recounting some of the major events where God showed up. 
And y'all, I know that history bores some of us. I get that. I understand that, that it may not get all of our attention. But one of the purposes of the Bible, I think, one of the most applicable ways that you knowing the Bible will encourage you is that it will help you to see that God has always gotten his way. Nothing has ever snuck up on him. He's never been surprised. At the time of Habakkuk, God was ushering history toward the birth and the death and the resurrection of his perfect son, Jesus Christ. And right now, God is ushering history toward the return of his son, Jesus Christ. And just knowing that and knowing that God has always come through is going to help you have faith in the future. It's going to help you wait. So understanding of how God has worked in the past needs to grow. Second, under letter B, our holy fear of God needs to grow as well. Our holy fear of God. Because if you look again at verse 16, what really is verse 16? How does Habakkuk respond to God? Anticipating God's work. What does it say? It says he hears and what? His body trembles is the way he's describing it. His lips quiver. Rottenness enters into his bones. I don't even know what that means. But it's a pretty intimidating statement. His legs are shaking beneath him, is what the text says. Consider this. Habakkuk has went from, remember when we started the book two months ago? Habakkuk has went from questioning God, maybe some could even say doubting God two chapters ago, to trembling before the Lord. I think there's a holy fear that has fallen on this man. and Not just a newfound reverence, but a real fear. My body is about to collapse because God has spoken to me. Now, is that the way that you respond to God? Is that the way that we respond when we spend time reading the Word? Is that the way we respond when we spend time praying and fasting in our life? I think that if that was the God that we were acknowledging, that we were coming together to worship waiting on something that we know is coming from him would be a lot easier. Let me share this and then we'll move on. I've never been to Stockholm, Sweden. I'm sure it is a beautiful city. I don't doubt that at all. But um, I've been told that it's the fastest growing capital in all of Europe. Lots of immigrants and a high birth rate for Europe, which Europe traditionally has a very low birth rate. And they've made it an incredibly difficult city to find a house in, really to find an apartment in. So much so that the average wait for rent-controlled apartments in Stockholm, Sweden is nine years. Nine years for an apartment. And some in the more trendy neighborhoods, which I wouldn't have to worry about living in that, but if you're wanting to live in one of the more trendy neighborhoods, the nice neighborhoods with the restaurants and the bars and everything else, you know how long you're going to wait? You're going to wait 20 years for an apartment. Can you imagine waiting 20 years for an apartment, I think to myself, Sweden can't be that awesome, really. There's no way that Sweden is that cool. I'm sure it's nice. I'm sure Stockholm is beautiful. But 20 years, are you, are you kidding me? I mean, I get frustrated with two-day shipping on Amazon. I'm like, this is, un, this is not acceptable. We shouldn't have to wait this long for our stuff. 20 years is a little bit extreme for me. But look, the reason that people are willing and able, really, to wait nine years or even 20 years for an apartment is because they place the tremendous value on what they're waiting for. And if we can come to a situation like Habakkuk found himself in, where his nation is falling apart, where he's looking toward the future and he knows that it's only going to get worse, and he can say something like this, it only proves that he was placing a tremendous value on the sovereignty and the work of God and God alone. 
So we saw that the story of Habakkuk changes the way we wait. Now we're going to see the second way it changes us. The second way is that it changes the way we worship. It changes the way we worship. Because look now at verses 17, 18, and 19. Look at your copy of God's Word. It says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. By the way, that last sentence talking about the stringed instruments, this is probably a prayer that was meant to be sung among the people of God. So it's difficult for us to see how you could sing it in English, but in Hebrew they would have sang this. So it changes the way we worship. Now remember what worship is. Let's just kind of review this a little bit. Worship is casting your admiration or your love or your devotion toward something. Now the format of worship can look very different. It's not always the same. I mean, we pray as worship. We sing as worship. We go to the Word and read scripture as worship. We, um, you know, we, we give as an act of worship. All of those are ways that we worship. Those are supposed to be all things that we do on Sunday morning. Those are, those are acts of worship. But I want you to listen to how some notable voices in Christianity today, as well as Christianity past, have defined worship, as well as the aspects that kind of surround worship. Listen to how A.W. Tozer put it. He said, I can safely say on the authority of all that is revealed in the word of God, that any man or woman on this earth who is bored and turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. John Ortberg, he said, I need to worship because without it I can forget that I have a big God beside me and that I can forget to live in fear. I need to worship because without it I can forget his calling and begin to live in a spirit of self-preoccupation. I need to worship because without it I lose a sense of wonder and gratitude and plod through life with blinders on. I need worship because my natural tendency is towards self-reliance and stubborn independence. Charles Spurgeon talking about how to grow our worship. He said, nothing teaches us about the preciousness of the creator as much as when we learn the emptiness of everything else. Francis Chan said, this is a good one. All of them are good, but this is good. He said, many spirit-filled authors have exhausted the thesaurus in order to describe God with the glory he deserves. His perfect holiness, by definition, assures us that our words can't contain him. Isn't it a comfort to worship a God we cannot exaggerate? Timothy Keller says, God directs his people not simply to worship, but to sing his praises before the nations. We are called not simply to communicate the gospel to non-believers. We also must intentionally celebrate the gospel before them. And one of my favorite quotes, very simple but very true, comes from John Piper. He says, true worship is a valuing or a treasuring of God above all things. Which according to his definition means that you can worship God and yet not worship God in the degree or in the way that God deserves to be worshipped. And that other things can be stealing your affections. You know, things like money, things like people, things like your image, things like your ego Things like all the stuff that Luke talked about last week. That's really what idolatry is. Idolatry is taking the devotion and the treasuring of something that's supposed to be reserved for God and God alone, and you're placing it on some created thing. 
tangible or intangible. Well, let's think about Habakkuk through the course of these three chapters. I think we're now seeing that Habakkuk's worship of God has truly changed. It has really been transformed. He's no longer arguing with God, is he? He's no longer drowning in worry. Anxiety is not the chief emotion that he is experiencing at this point in his life. He really is doing nothing less than he's standing in awe of our Creator. Here's how I see that his worship has changed in this book, and I think it's the ways that our worship needs to change as well. First, under letter A, we worship in famine or in plenty. We worship in famine or in plenty. Think about what verse 17 says. I know we've already read it, but look at it again. It says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, there's no herd in the stall, even still... I am going to rejoice in the Lord. Did you realize he just described starvation? That's what he's talking about there. If I am starving to death, there's no food available in the land. The crops are burnt. The animals are dead. Imagine the earth being a wasteland is the image that he's drawing for us. Habakkuk is saying, still, even then, I will rejoice in the Lord. And if you remember the, the history of the Bible, I pointed this out several weeks back and on several weeks um, uh, all, all the way through this series, that's exactly what happens. Because remember, this is about 20, 25 years before an event happens when the Babylonians do indeed march into Judah and they destroy everything. So he's going to see this. Death and pestilence are very much going to surround him. And he says, I am going to find strength in God and God alone. It's really an amazing thing to think about. Now, look, I know this is 2,600 years ago when Habakkuk is writing. There's all kinds of food in our country today. We don't have to worry about starvation. I mean, you can go get a, a, a triple-double crunch wrap from Taco Bell at 3 in the morning if you want. This is what it means to be an American. It's a good thing, right? Nobody eats figs here anymore. What do we have to worry about? But look, we may not right now have to worry about not having food to eat, but the principle that Habakkuk is communicating is, God, even if that thing that I feel like I need more than anything else, even if you never give me that thing, I am still going to rejoice in you. That's the principle that is fueling Habakkuk's prayer. So, what if you don't ever have a child? Can you still rejoice in him? What if you don't ever have a spouse? Can you still rejoice in him? What if you don't ever have a good income? What if you don't ever have the house that you think that you deserve? What if, Lord, please make it stop, but what if babies keep getting gassed in Syria? Can you still rejoice in him? What if orphans still keep going to bed at night without an evening meal? What if you never get to retire? What if that person that you desire more than anything else in the world to come to know Christ, to follow Jesus, what if that never happens? What if they continue in rebellion for all of their life? Can you still rejoice in Jesus? Now, if not, if you'll admit that you're not sure, just admit that you're not completely sure, look at the second way that our worship changes. Under letter B, we worship rejoicing in God and God alone. I think this is why... Habakkuk can say this because verses 18 and 19 are basically Habakkuk crying out to God and telling God how much he loves him. 
Telling him how he's going to rely on nothing but God. I mean, if you write in your Bible, you might want to circle all the references in verses 18 and 19 to God. I mean, it's just saturated through this. Look at it. It says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Verse 19, God, the Lord is my strength. He, who is he? It's God. He makes my feet like the deer's. He, who is he? Once again, it's God. He makes me tread on my high places. No less than six places in the final two verses of the book of Habakkuk does Habakkuk just tell God and us reading the words 2,600 years later about how God is awesome. That's basically what he spends the last two verses doing. And I think there's something in there for us to grab hold of. Struggling through the difficult things of life, the difficult things of God, that's not necessarily a wrong thing. Not necessarily wrong that Habakkuk responded in the way that he responded in our first and our second chapter. Habakkuk has questioned God. How can you allow injustice to occur? How can you choose to carry out your will in the way that you're going to? I don't think that those are wrong things to wrestle with and to question, to cry out to God, to possibly even mourn over. But I think we have to recognize that at least in this case, God uses it as an opportunity to draw Habakkuk closer to him to just help him to focus, to gaze upon God and God alone. So let's stop there and let's think about what we've seen. We've covered this whole third chapter of the book of Habakkuk. I know it's a lot of text, but those really opening 15 verses can be summarized, I think, in just a couple different statements. We've seen how God meeting Habakkuk changed Habakkuk, and I will add the whole point is that it changes us as well. It has to. It is meant to. It is designed to do that. It should change the way we wait And it should change the way that we worship. And I think that Habakkuk at the end of the book is a different dude when compared to the Habakkuk that we met a little over two months ago when we started working through this book. But if if you remember, we've called this series, The Righteous Shall Live by Faith. Because in chapter 2, verse 4, what does God tell Habakkuk to do? He says, hey, the righteous are going to live by faith. You, Habakkuk, as the world crumbles around you, as you, you have questions about society and suffering and sin and, and, and God and, and, and everything else, you will live by faith. And I was thinking, okay, we've come to the end of this book. If there was one thing that we could do, if there was one emphasis that I'd really throw on the table and it would be the thing that I want everybody in here to leave um, today with, over these last eight or nine weeks or however long it's been, and I want this thing to be on your mind as we next week come back for Easter, and then a couple weeks after that we start marching through the book of Hebrews, which is going to take us all the way through to the end of the year. What is the one thing that I want everybody to be aware of? I want everybody to take home from the book of Habakkuk, and I'll tell you what it is, but first I'm going to set it up like this. My youngest daughter, London, loves to play hide and go seek. I think everybody in here has played that at one point in their life or not. Um, Her version of hide and go seek is that she hides in the same spot every time. So she runs into her bedroom. She slams the bedroom door behind her so everybody knows exactly where she is. Um, She jumps in her bed. She pulls the covers up over her head and she starts laughing hysterically. So it's not much hiding, to be honest with you. But one time we were playing hide-and-go-seek, and she was counting, and I was hiding. And I think I was hiding in the shower in the master bedroom, I, I think, in the master bathroom. I think that's where I was, and I can hear her. Um, I can hear her counting, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, nine, ten. And then I hear her say, ready or not, here I come. And then I hear the little footsteps running all over the house and doors opening, and she's looking in all the normal spots that we hide. And 
I'm listening and I anticipate her, okay, she's checked everywhere else. She's now going to walk into the master bedroom, eventually make it in the master bathroom, and she'll, she'll find me. And she knows about the shower. Like, that's a regular place that I hide because I don't have to sit, you know, get down or, you know, actually hide. Just pull the shower curtain in front of me, and it's a, you know, she, she's, she's happy about that. But then all of a sudden, I don't hear anything. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, what do I do? I don't hear the little feet running all, all over the place. I'm starting to get concerned. Um, so I sit there, and I wait, and I wait and I wait, and I wait a little bit longer, and I finally get tired of it, and I get out of the shower, and I go into the living room, and she's sitting down on the couch, and she's watching Doc McStuffins or Sophia or whatever the show happens to be, and I say, hey, what's up? Why are you leaving me hanging? I've been hiding for like 10 minutes now. Why didn't you come and find me? Like, this is the game. We play this all the time, and her reason was because I had left the light to the bedroom and the light also to the bathroom, the master bathroom, off. And it was dark. And the darkness scared her so much so that even though she checked everywhere else in the house and she knew for certain that I was in that bedroom or that bathroom, even though she knew for certain that that's where her father was, she couldn't see, so she refused to proceed. And she sits down and she turns on Netflix like a good little three-year-old. <laughs> and if you don't heed the message of Habakkuk, you are going to be, in a spiritual sense, you're going to be just like her. You're going to be that person that lives in misery. You're going to be that person that lives with this incredible burden of anxiety. Or you're going to drown in discontentment. Or you're going to become incredibly angry with God. All because you can't see through the fog and the haze that life naturally produces, all the while, that's where God is. God is waiting for you inside of that. So you, Christian, you're never going to know everything there is to know about your life and about your future and about how everything is going to pan out for God's glory, about the role of suffering in the world. You are going to have your moments where you're going to sound a lot like Habakkuk sounds in this book, but, but you can know everything you need to know. Namely, that God really is a sovereign God. God is not a puppet on a string, isn't he? He's not being manipulated by you or by anyone else, even by the world. He's never surprised. He's not running behind. He has you and I and this world right where it needs to be. That's what God had to show Habakkuk, and I think that's what God needs to show all of us in this book even today. So I'll pray for us, and then after I pray, we'll stand and we'll sing together. Heavenly Father and Lord, I thank you, God, that we have got to march through this book. And Lord, it's encouraging for me to um, just be able to teach your word and know that there are people that desire to hear it, Lord, that really want to know how this book, how the context of, of your scripture changes the way that we live, Lord, that it's not just dead pages, um, dead words on a dead page, but Lord, that it is living and active. And that when we find the setting and the context, we can see that so many of the exact same things that Habakkuk was struggling with and that he was questioning, those are the same questions that we have in life. Lord, why do you allow the world to continue the way it is? Why does suffering exist? Why don't you just take care of all of it, Lord? These are the same questions that we have. And as we've worked through Habakkuk, we have found out that you don't necessarily answer all of Habakkuk's questions. But what we do realize is that you allow Habakkuk to see just a little bit more of who you are. Just enough so that he can... He can rest in who you are. He can rest in the future. He can know that no matter if, if famine exists, 
No matter if his country dissolves right before his eyes. No matter what kind of suffering could possibly be in line for him. That, that he can find comfort and rest and purpose in you and you alone. So thank you, Lord, that we now, as your people, get to find that, we get to embrace that, we get to apply that to our life. Now, Lord, as we're going to stand and we're going to sing, my prayer is that you'd be honored. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.